I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, where we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 to 11. Continuing on in our series in the Gospel according to Luke, verses 1 to 11 in Luke chapter 5. This is a new section. We're starting a new section in Luke's Gospel uh, from chapter 5, verse 1 until about the middle of chapter 6. It's a section that's focused on discipleship, as you'll see today with Jesus calling His, his first uh, disciples. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and ask you to follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the Word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's Word. Father, we do ask that You would help us now to hear the Word of God with ears that are ready to hear and ready to believe and respond in repentance and faith and living lives of obedience to Your Word and to the Lord Jesus that bring glory to His name. Please help us, God, now. Please illuminate our hearts and minds. Father, please keep me from error. Please grant Your people discernment as we consider now the Scriptures, the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, our passage this morning describes two incredible catches. The first catch is the one that typically gets the most attention. It's the unexpected catch of fish. A catch so great that it almost sinks the boats of the fishermen. I've been fishing a few times. I've never seen anything like that. A catch so great that it almost sinks the boats. The catch is clearly miraculous, and it occurs at the command of Jesus, who is not actually a fisherman. That's the first catch. The second catch, though, in Luke chapter 5, is the one that's actually the most astounding and the one that should get the most attention. It's Jesus' catch of His first disciples, Peter and James and John. Did you notice it, friends, that the passage ends with the emphasis on following Jesus? Verse 11. I mean, it's really astounding. It's the best night of fishing in these men's lives. It's the best night of fishing they ever had, or the best day of fishing that they've ever had. 
And they simply leave the boats and the nets and follow Jesus. Even after the best day of fishing that they could ever possibly imagine, it's Jesus who has captured the hearts and minds of these fishermen. And this, friends, gives us some important insight for understanding not only the miracle in this passage, but all of Jesus' miracles. You see, the miracles of Jesus are not simply displays of power. The miracles of Jesus are also messages or lessons that teach us something about Jesus and what it means to follow Him. One scholar has even called Jesus' miracles enacted parables. Enacted parables. That's not to say that the miracles are untrue. All of Jesus' miracles occurred just as we find them in the Bible. But it does help us, it does remind us that Jesus does not do miracles simply for the sake of doing miracles. He's not, he's not a, a, you know, a carnival sideshow miracle guy. The miracles are the message. The miracles are intended to teach us truth about who Jesus is. And that's the case here in Luke chapter 5. The first catch of fish sets up the second catch of men. The first catch sets up the second. Just as Jesus' Word is able to catch fish where unexpected, so also Jesus' Word is able to make, or we could say catch disciples, even when unexpected. Do you see the connection? The miracle is part of the message. The first catch sets up the second and helps us understand the second. And that should confirm to us, brothers and sisters, that this passage is about discipleship. The main focus of this text is discipleship. Luke 5 is about following Jesus. You can see this even in how the passage unfolds. Whenever you're reading narratives in the Bible, it's always a good idea to pay attention to who drives the action. Who moves the plot along. And in this passage, it's Jesus. Jesus drives the action. Everything happens at His initiative. From teaching the people to getting into the boat to giving the new mission in verse 10. Jesus drives the action. And notice then how Peter follows Jesus' initiative. Peter's not perfect, but he does stand out as an example in these verses. When Jesus speaks, Peter responds. When Jesus tells Peter to do something, Peter does it. He follows what Jesus says. You see, friends, the entire passage from the miracle to the flow of the action. The entire passage is aimed at directing us to follow Jesus. To follow Him at His Word. So it's fitting that we would spend our time paying attention to what this text teaches us about discipleship. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to three marks of a disciple that are apparent in this Passage. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? This passage gives us three marks of that. Each one's connected with Jesus, and each one helps us understand a bit better what it means to follow Him. The first mark comes in that opening miracle, verses 1-7. to Disciples bank everything on the Word of Jesus. Disciples bank everything on the Word of Jesus. As the scene begins, we see that Jesus is continued to be, he's continuing to focus on teaching God's Word. He's beside the Sea of Galilee, and there's a crowd of people pressing in to hear the Word of God. And the crowd is eager, friends. They're literally pressing Jesus into the water, pressing Him into the, into the lake. He's on the shore, and there's no place else to go. 
So the crowd is very eager, they're very hungry, but they're also a bit of a problem. That They're going to drive Jesus into the, the lake they want to hear so badly. But then verse 3, Jesus takes the initiative for the first but not the last time in this passage. Jesus takes the initiative. He gets into Simon Peter's boat and He tells Simon, push out a little bit from the shore. And Simon does it. And the boat then becomes like a floating platform, a floating stage from which Jesus can get a little space and teach the people the Word of God. But it's what happens after that teaching that should get our attention. Jesus turns His focus to Simon Peter. And now we start to realize that Jesus has something more in mind than just teaching the crowd. Jesus has something to teach Simon as well. Look at verse 4 and notice again Jesus' initiative. Verse 4, And when Jesus had finished speaking, He said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now remember, friends, Peter and his partners have already cleaned up all of their gear. They've already cleaned up all their nets. They're ready to go home. What's more, Peter and his partners have already been fishing all night and they didn't catch anything. Notice the first line in verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. You see, nighttime is the best time to fish, but Peter and his friends caught nothing last night and now the sun is hot on the water and surely they won't catch anything now. What do carpenters know about fishing anyway? They're ready to go home. From the circumstances, Jesus' command appears to make little sense. That's the key, friends. You've got to catch this. On the surface, Jesus' command makes very little sense. Why fish now? Then comes the turning point in the text. Peter expresses some hesitation at first, but then notice what else Peter says. Verse 5, And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at Your Word, Peter says, at Your Word, I will let down the nets. Friends, I take this as a turning point in Peter's life. And it's an example to every disciple who would come after him. Instead of acting on the basis of what he can see, Peter acts on the authority of Jesus' Word. Instead of acting on the basis of what he can see, Peter acts on the authority of Jesus' Word. Instead of focusing on the circumstances, Peter focuses on Jesus' Word as powerful and worthy of His response. And so, on the basis of Jesus' Word and nothing else, nothing else, Peter responds. Peter follows. And the result, as you know, is astounding. Verses 6 and 7, Jesus' Word proves unimaginably fruitful. Verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So the carpenter who teaches Scripture knows more about fishing than the fishermen. Brothers, I can't, brothers and sisters, I cannot stress this point enough to you. Peter banks everything on Jesus' Word. Understand, the circumstances did not change until after Peter took Jesus at His Word. Jesus didn't tell him ahead of time, no, seriously, put the nest down, you're going to catch a lot of fish. He didn't tell him that. There was no guarantee that anything would happen. There was no promise of fruit before the moment of faith. All Peter had was Jesus' Word. All Peter had was Jesus' command. And that Word, friends, was enough. 
Jesus' word was enough for Peter to take action, to trust the Master, and to let down the nets. You see, this is arguably the most foundational step of discipleship. Pictured right here in Luke chapter 5. Discipleship begins with placing all of our trust, all of our confidence in Jesus and in His Word. It is Jesus' Word that calls us. It is His Word that has the authority. And most importantly, it is Jesus' Word that sustains us in the following. To be a disciple of Jesus then is to bank everything on His Word. Friends, I am, I, am, I am struck by how much Peter's situation in the boat matches up with living the Christian life. And just think about it for a, for a second. Think about how often Jesus' Word calls us to act even when the circumstances would say that acting makes no sense. Forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That makes no sense from our perspective. But Jesus' Word sustains us. Cast all your anxieties on God because He cares for you. That feels somewhat powerless, especially when you lose your job or when you get the scary diagnosis. But Jesus' Word sustains us. If anyone would follow Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. That's a costly way to live, friends. Why would anyone do that? Because Jesus' Word sustains us. Do you see the foundational point here, brothers and sisters? A disciple banks everything on Jesus' Word because it is only Jesus' Word that is enough to sustain us in the following. Listen, this is why we so regularly encourage you to be taking in the Word of God. It's not simply about forming pious habits or learning Bible knowledge. It's about finding the strength and the sustaining foundation for your everyday Christian life. How are you going to walk by faith tomorrow when faith seems impossible? How are you going to do that? Only at the Word of Jesus? Only by banking everything on the Word of God? And I hope that this moment with Peter in the boat reminds you, reminds us, that Jesus' Word is enough. His Word is enough to both call for our faith and then to sustain our faith in the following. At your Word, Peter says. At your Word. Live only by the grace of Jesus. If you're you're familiar with Jesus' ministry, then you'll know that Simon Peter is often quick to respond. Sometimes Peter's response is wrong-headed. But in other instances, Peter's response is exactly right. And that's what we have in this passage. Peter gets it right. You'll notice in verse 8 that Peter recognizes this is about more than fish. I don't know how much credit we should give him for that. Two boats full of fish that are sinking. It's probably not hard to conclude, hmm, this is about more than fishing. But Peter gets this this point uh, right. He recognizes it's about more than fish. It's about Jesus' identity. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Friends, Peter gets two things exactly right in his confession in verse 8. He gets two things exactly right. First of all, Peter sees a bit more clearly who Jesus is. 
there's a change in Peter from verse 5 to verse 8. Perhaps you heard it as we read. In verse 5, what does Peter call Jesus? He calls Him Master, which is a polite term of respect, like Sir in our day. He calls Him Sir. But then notice what Peter calls Jesus in verse 8. What does he call Him then? He calls Him Lord. Friends, that's more than a term of respect. It's a term of reverence. It's a term of adoration. Now, that's not to say that Peter completely understands Jesus' identity as fully God and fully man. That understanding will come only at the cross and the resurrection. But the change from Master to Lord does indicate that Peter understands God is present and working in and through Jesus. By going from Master to Lord, Peter indicates that he, he sees now that God is here and He's working in this man. He's present. And that's why Peter calls Jesus Lord. Because Peter recognizes that at this moment, he is standing in the presence and he's near the power of the Almighty God. So Peter sees a bit more clearly who Jesus is. But you also notice that Peter... Peter sees himself a bit more clearly too. He sees himself a bit more clearly. God's presence and power in Jesus are enough to convict Peter of his sin. Notice again his confession in verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You see, Peter recognizes that he's not worthy to stand in the presence of such an awesome and mighty person. It's a bit like the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, isn't it? Do you remember that moment in the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the glory and the power and the presence of the Almighty God. And in response, the prophet cries out, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The vision of God caused the prophet to see himself. The same thing, the same dynamic is happening here in Luke chapter Five, Peter sees the power and the presence of God in Jesus, and the glory of Jesus exposes Peter's unworthiness. It helps him see himself. It shows Peter his sin. It shows Peter his, his uncleanness. You see, that's why Peter pleads with Jesus to leave. Peter's not worthy to stand in the presence of such a glorious person. Friends, I take this to be a consistent occurrence across the Bible. Whenever a person is given a deeper glimpse into the character of God, it always causes that person to see themselves more for who they are. Unclean sinners who are unworthy to stand in God's presence. Or to say it another way, seeing more of God should make us a more humble people. In fact, if your knowledge of God is not making you more humble, then you probably need to consider whether or not you're actually growing in the knowledge of God. People who say they know God and also boast in themselves are telling a lie. For it's hard to know God and be proud. And that's not to say that every Christian is perfectly humble but it is to say people who truly know God are growing in that sense of humility. A true understanding of God always humbles those who see Him, and that is a good thing, friends. But here in the passage, Jesus is not finished with Peter, not in the least. Look at verse 10. 
And notice Jesus' first response. There's a lot in verse 10. But for now, just, just notice the first words that Jesus says. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. I love that, friends. What a picture of Jesus' heart for His people. Understand, Peter's confession is right. Peter is unworthy. And that means Peter's gut reaction of, I can't stand in this man's presence. I can't be around this glorious person. That gut reaction is right. Peter has no claim to be connected with Jesus at this point. Peter, Peter is unworthy compared to such an exalted person. Peter deserves nothing. And he certainly does not deserve the blessing of being called as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's gut reaction of saying, get away from me, Jesus, that gut reaction is exactly right. He's right. And yet, what is the first thing that Lord, the Lord Jesus tells this unworthy man? Do not be afraid. That's the heart of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. That's the heart of Jesus Christ. When we are broken by the truth of God's awesome power, and when we begin to see how unworthy we are compared to God, the Lord Jesus doesn't cast us out. He calms our fears. He welcomes us with words of comfort. Do not be afraid, He says. You see, it's grace and nothing but grace that allows Peter to remain in the presence of Jesus Christ. I was talking this week with a fellow believer, a brother in Christ, and we were lamenting together how much sin remains in our hearts. Do you ever have those moments where you're just overwhelmed by the depth of corruption that still resides in your heart? You ever have those kind of moments? I have those moments. And I was talking with a, a brother this week in just one such moment. But as we talked together and, and sensed afresh the weight of our unworthiness before God, something else struck us. It was the truth that though our sin is far deeper than we perceive, the Lord Jesus is far greater than what we can imagine. How deeply... The Lord loves His people. How tenderly He cares for His sheep. I'm unworthy, Jesus. And He says, do not be afraid. I mean, it's my favorite Old Testament prophecy of Jesus' coming, of the Messiah's coming. Isaiah 42. What will the Messiah be like? A bruised reed He will not break. And a faintly smoldering wick He will not quench. You can come to Jesus with your faith on embers. Just a, little, just a little smoke of life coming up from the faith of your heart. And Jesus doesn't quench it. He says, do not be afraid. And then He, he coaxes the life out of it. And He tenderly cultivates a heart that will trust Him. That's the heart of the Savior, friends. It's a heart that says, do not be afraid. And that's that's what I pray you see here in the boat with Jesus. Do not be afraid, he says. He doesn't chastise Peter. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't frighten him. No, the Lord comforts him. He assures Peter there is grace for those who humble themselves before the living God. So friends, if you're aware of your brokenness today, there's no better place for you to go than to the Lord Jesus and find the grace that you need to live. In fact, that's how unworthy disciples like us Live. It's only by the grace 
of Jesus Christ. So in light of that grace, let's look at the third mark of a disciple here in in Luke 5. The third mark truly is rooted in the Savior's grace. Without grace, this third mark would be impossible. But by grace, this mark brings freedom. From verse 10, disciples embrace the mission of Jesus. They bank everything on the Word of Jesus. They live only by the grace of Jesus. And disciples embrace the mission of Jesus. After His gracious Word that dispels Peter's fear, Jesus then commissions Peter with a new purpose in life. Just as Peter once caught fish, now he will join Jesus in the work of catching men. Notice again verse 10, And Jesus said, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Again, notice the grace of the Lord Jesus. He not only comforts and assures Peter, but He makes him a worthwhile and fitting servant to His name. Now, many of us, if you grew up going to church, many of us probably sang songs in Sunday school about being fishers of men. I'm not going to sing any of those songs for you. But even though we may know this uh, familiarity, uh, we may have some familiarity with Jesus' command, what are we to make of this new mission? What does Jesus mean when He says, from now on you're going to be catching men? What should we take away from this? Well, first of all, we should note that Jesus Himself gives us the model to follow. When it comes to the mission, Jesus Himself has given us the the model. Think about it. How has Jesus caught Peter, so to speak? Through His Word. uh, Through teaching from the Scriptures and calling Peter with His authoritative Word. So now make the connection with Peter and with you and me. How will Peter go about the work of catching men in the same way as the Master? Through Jesus' Word. Through teaching and proclaiming from the Scriptures. You see, at every step, Jesus goes ahead and leads His people where they should go. That's the essence of discipleship, friends. A disciple is not a trailblazer, but a follower. We follow in the Lord's footsteps, doing what we've seen Him do. So, if I could just put it this way, Jesus fished with the Word of God, so we should fish with the Word of God. How do we catch people? With the Scriptures. Whether it's our children, or our own neighbors, or our co-workers, When it comes to making disciples, the Word of God is foundational. Whatever the situation, our calling is to open the Scriptures and then with wisdom and prayerful dependence, call people to follow Jesus on the road of discipleship. The Word of God's foundational. And that leads into what is perhaps the most important takeaway for us from verse 10. In Jesus' eyes, making disciples is central to our own discipleship. Making disciples is central to our own discipleship. So I'm, I'm just going to say some things that are very straightforward, and if there's any misunderstanding from what I say, just come and fi- find me after the sermon. Let's try to clarify it together. But I'm just going to say some things very straightforwardly. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, then the Lord has called you and gifted you to make disciples. It's not a question of whether you should be engaged in that work. It's just a question of how and where. If you're a believer, this is what the Lord has called you to do. This is the calling, the work of every Christian. And every believer has been gifted by God to do this work. Of course, this doesn't look the same in every believer's life. We have different gifts and different circumstances that allow us to minister in a variety of places in different ways. But even in those differences, this is still the calling of each and every one of us called to make disciples. To be a follower of Christ 
is to be called and gifted to make more followers of Christ. To be a fisher of men and women. And so, something that we don't talk about much anymore in our churches, but we ought to, this foundational aspect of making disciples ourselves, this means, brothers and sisters, that we should be burdened for those who are lost. Our hearts should be burdened for those who are lost. Listen, discipleship involves more than evangelism, but discipleship does begin with evangelism. With seeing lost people saved by God's grace through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the context of this passage, that's the primary point that Jesus is trying to make. Fishing for men and women is about the salvation of sinners. It's about conversion. They're being saved. I know that the image is somewhat off because when you fish, you're catching fish in order to, to eat them. But in Jesus' image, you're catching fish in order to save them. Right? You're, 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 it's about conversion. It's about seeing sinners saved. And it's a work of God that He carries out through the ministry of His people. And listen, that means we should be burdened for people who are lost and without Christ. Perhaps that's a good place for us to start. One way that we can be obedient to this passage, maybe the first step in being obedient to this passage, is by praying for God to burden our hearts for those who do not know Christ. Listen, I'll just confess to you that I'm often simply too busy to see all the opportunities that God has given me to make Christ known. I'm nearly, like, like all of you, nothing unique here, like all of you, I'm nearly always on the run to do something else. I'm just busy. And so I don't have time to do much fishing, so to speak. And I think that's true for most Christians these days, which is why I say we should begin with prayer, asking God to burden our hearts for those who do not know Christ. If people don't hear the Gospel and believe by God's grace, they will die and go to hell. Ask God to burden our hearts for the lost so that His glory is seen in the salvation of sinners. That's maybe the first place to start. Along with that kind of prayer, there's a couple of other practical ways that we can be about the work of fishing for men and women. And again, I'm assuming here that when, I, when you hear me talk about evangelism and seeing people converted, you know that I mean that requires us to use words to tell people about the gospel. Okay, so I'm assuming we have to tell people about Jesus. All right? Let me give you some other practical ways in which we have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus or to be fishing for men and women. Just some practical ways that I think we could do this. One way is to practice hospitality especially with friends and neighbors. As you all know, you probably feel this in your own lives, our society is increasingly isolated. It's rare for people to know their neighbors, much less engage with them in actual relationships. I know it's that way on my street. I know one of my neighbors by name. But instead of bemoaning that cultural change, we as Christians can take it as an open door, a strategic way to be about our mission. Inviting neighbors and coworkers into our homes to share a meal can be a powerful way of reaching out with the gospel. Over time, relationships are built and God's grace can work to bring new life to those who do not know the Lord. So we're all called to be fishers of, of men. One practical way that we can think about doing that is being hospitable people. 
gathering around a table so that the Word of God can do its work. There's just one practical way. Here's another practical way. There's a lot of them, but I had to limit it to two. So here's the second one. Along with practicing hospitality, another practice that we could engage in is inviting people to church. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by this, because I don't mean what you might think that I mean. I don't mean invite people to church so that the preacher can do the work of sharing the gospel with them. I don't mean that. For sure, people will hear the gospel if they attend our church. If they don't, you should come and talk to me. Right? People will hear the gospel if they come to our church. But that's not the primary point that I'm trying to make here. I'm thinking more about the life of the church together. A life that's marked by by brotherly love. The philosopher Charles Taylor has written that one of the effects of secularization is that people increasingly live with a disillusioned view of the world. You know, we live in a secular society now. And secularism tells us that the world is a closed system that operates solely on the laws of nature. Right? Just cause and effect. Right? That's what the secular worldview is. It's a closed, the world is a closed system where just the laws of nature determine what happens. But in, a, in that kind of closed system, do you know what gets pushed out? Do you know what there's no room for in that kind of closed system? Grace. Mercy. The laws of nature are not merciful. A closed system of just purely natural means is not gracious. If the world is just carrying on doing what molecules do at this temperature and under these conditions, then what place is there for grace? There's not any. And over time, that creates a deep sense of disillusionment for people who live with a secularized view of the world. So to put it very plainly, friends, the secularized world, that's the world we live in, There's no sense in saying, man, I wish we could go back to the good old days. You can't do that. They probably weren't that good anyway. You live in a secularized world. And a secularized world, to put it very simply, is just a cold and lonely place. Just a cold and lonely place. But again, instead of simply bemoaning this as Christians, we should take it as an opportunity. By inviting people to witness the gathering of the church, we can give disillusioned people a glimpse of the world and of humanity as God intended it to be. We can give people a glimpse of human beings as God meant them to be or, has, or how the, the people and the humanity and the life and the relationships and the culture, how it was ordered by God. The church gathered, you see, is a gospel picture. It's the church gathered is a community where grace, not nature, rules. It's both the grace of God in the gospel, but also the grace of Christ extended between brother and sister. And in light of that grace, this is what I'm trying to get to, in light of that kind of grace, the dreariness of a secularized world is exposed and shown to be bankrupt. And the beauty of a life of faith becomes clear and compelling. Understand, brothers and sisters, this is part of our, this is integral to our calling as disciples of Christ. We are called to embody or to put on display the hope of the gospel. Listen, we saw that even this week in our own church, didn't we? As, as so many of us 
rallied to care for and support a brother and sister in need. In a secularized worldview, that's not normal. Neither is it necessary. But by the grace of God, that is true of the Lord Jesus' church. And that's the reason why I say that one of the ways we can be about fishing for people is by inviting them to come and witness the gathering of the church together. It's not because we need a minister to give a formal gospel presentation. It's because being here among all of you can be a powerful means of grace that opens people's eyes to a better way to live than the disillusionment of a a secular world. It allows for the love of Christ manifested in His people to, to embody the gospel and to form a compelling picture of what Christ does in and for lost people. Invite them into your home and then invite them to see the body of Christ gathered. And in those contexts, the Lord will open doors for the Word. So, by grace, Jesus gives Peter a new mission. And by grace, we've received that same mission as well. To join Jesus in proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ. To join Jesus in being fishers of men. You'll notice the passage concludes in verse 11 where Peter and his partners leave everything to follow Jesus. You see it there, verse 11. It's a small picture of what we'll see over and over throughout Luke's Gospel. Following Jesus is costly, but the cost is worth it. It's costly, but it's worth it. I want to close, though, by by answering a, a final question or trying to answer a final question for us. As we've seen, Jesus calls His followers to be fishers of of men, of seeing lost people saved by the same grace that called us to Christ. That's our mission. Here's my question. That mission is almost overwhelmingly massive. So, how can we ever expect to see such a mission accomplished? What hope do people like us have uh, have of accomplishing such a vast and monumental mission? Mission. That's my question. Maybe it's a question that you've asked and answered before. If the mission is so big, and it is, how could we ever be about doing it? The answer, brothers and sisters, points us back to the miracle in this passage. Remember, the miracle is the message. And that's where we find the answer. Think about it. Was it very likely in verse 5 that Peter would catch any fish? No. Not very likely at all. They fished all night and they caught nothing. What's more, it wasn't even the right time to be fishing. In other words, there was no reason to expect that they would be successful. There was very little hope of catching anything. And yet, what happened? Through the power of Jesus' Word, the Lord brought in the catch. Through the power of His Word, Jesus filled those nets full to the point of breaking. What seemed like an impossible, improbable task was fulfilled not by Peter's strategy or strength or know-how, but by the powerful, life-giving, gracious Word of Jesus Christ. That's the answer, brothers and sisters. That's the answer. We can give ourselves to the mission of Christ because we go out with the Word of Christ. What did the Apostle Paul say in Romans 1? We read it earlier in the service. What does it say in Romans 1? We're not ashamed of the Gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is our mission. And the Lord Jesus has given us what we need to fish faithfully. 
He's given us His Word. So, may we devote ourselves to knowing the Scriptures, believing the Scriptures, and then proclaiming the Scriptures all to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. And may God grant us fruit, brothers and sisters, until the nets begin to break and the day the Lord Jesus returns. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that You have given to us. We thank You for the hope of the Gospel in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, we ask, to be faithful to Him. Help us to rely upon His Word, to bank everything on His Word. Remind us of His grace that meets us in our need. Father, and then remind us of His Spirit and His equipping that calls us to faithfully give ourselves to this mission and remind us, God, that every cost is worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.